Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the novel Missionaries. Me, the slumming angel, the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. It is with great resolve, friends, and keen conviction that we bring you what is one of the most important manifestos ever written, uh, by which I mean one that entertains matters of life and death and eternal life and eternal damnation and art and artists and comedy. And that is Flannery O'Connor's 1960 speech, Some Aspects of the Grotesque in Southern Fiction, later republished as an essay in O'Connor's collection, Mystery and Manners. And that's what we have for the prosecution, for the defense. We'll call Andrew <laughs> DeBoose's short story of crime and punishment called Killings. That was published in... I don't know when that was published, Phil. Do you know when that was published? The 20th century. Okay. Deboos, I, I think we can fairly say, is a late 20th century writer. Yeah, later. Yeah. <clears throat> so certainly after the 1960 uh, original appearance of O'Connor's work, um, I don't remember. Who decided to do the O'Connor, Phil? Was it, I think it was me, right? It was you. I mean, it's crazy that it took us this long to get to O'Connor. It is crazy. Um, I mean, we did a Patreon on Parker's back, but which is uh, one of my one of my favorite stories. Yeah, uh, by O'Connor. One of the the earliest American stories to feature tattoos, I would imagine. I mean, there's the Illustrated Man. Mm-hmm. So, I don't really know the history of tattoo literature. I could just be making that up, but <laughs> but a story that takes the tattoo as a as a kind of uh, moral edifice, seriously, which the illustrated man does not. It just uses it as a plot device. But this speech, I think you could fairly say, is a distillation is almost too, um, sounds too clinical to describe what it is in relation to O'Connor's work. I mean, I think of it in some ways as just another, another expression of the thing that she is always trying to get after but more more um obviously more literal and more direct and less metaphorical but no less comic no less literary in its construction as a speech but an effort to articulate what it is in her stories that struck some critics and particularly northern critics as i think you could you could call it, she says grotesque. What she means by that is Southern Gothic. So yeah. the, the Northern critical response to O'Connor and to certain other Southern writers as being freak show writers of a sort, writers of the picaresque. And this is her response to that notion that they are writers of the picaresque. And her, it's, it would be too weak to say defense of what she's doing, her 
conviction that the kind of writing she's doing is the and, and that other southern writers are doing is really the only serious american writing fair <laughs> a literature which mirrors society would be no fit guide for it right right, <laughs> right. there's a um you know she doesn't have any tolerance for <laughs> i think a particular type of of realism you know she's the social sciences have cast a dreary blight on the public approach to fiction and um she's not interested in in something that gives us typical social patterns uh but rather fiction that leads us toward mystery and toward the unexpected and i think that she uh she feels this sort of pressure from a critical and reading public that wants something that will articulate their that will mirror their views of society back at them, right? Right. Which I think is a perennial right. desire among the reading public, right? So now is an opportune time to mention that she is a Catholic writer, a Catholic daughter of Irish immigrants in the South. So this is, uh, you know, she grows up in Georgia. And as a Catholic in the Protestant South, she – and – as a pious Catholic in the Protestant South, she develops a a kind of fiction and a fiction of mystery and manners, as the the title of the anthology puts it, that is to the northern reader. Um, and I, you know, I use northern somewhat euphemistically here. I'm sure there were many southern critics who were every bit as kind of incredulous towards or credulous towards this i should say and and uh she really just means like genteel secular critic when she's yeah. northern so she's 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 a catholic in the protestant south and she's a pious believer in a more secular literary world right yes she's yes and her fiction which is interpreted as grotesque or picaresque is religious and so yeah. the heart, the heart of this, and this runs through all of her literature, or everything she wrote essentially features this in some way or another. The heart of this is that what is for her a matter of faith, theology, uh, the presence of God in the world, is for the critic a matter of the picaresque, the gothic, the grotesque, and the way that she the way that she deals with this is brilliant but before we get to the speeches to say a bit more about o'connor's place in literature and what leads up to this she writes her first novel is wise blood which i cannot possibly recommend so highly good. enough um you know i feel like uh, i'm always saying this but uh, people have told me that i'm always saying this but you know, that's a novel that like I modeled my life on for like five years, which was a strange thing to do as a, a Jewish kid in Brooklyn in the 1990s. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I wrote a whole screenplay with my friend uh, Tim Marchman. We wrote a screenplay. We had this whole universe worked out. No taste for death with Lola Cortelyou and Flip the Appropriate. Um, that was it, it was just us ripping off Flannery O'Connor. We used to go to Prospect Park 
and smoke blunts and like work on our Flannery O'Connor ripoffs. This was uh, <laughs> this was a big part of my life for a while, and I bring this up in part to say part of the initial appeal for me was absolutely the freakishness, which I enjoyed. I think at that time consciously on the level of the picaresque, but which resonated with me in the way that she had intended it to, but which I could not consciously appreciate at that time. I absolutely dug the freakishness of wise blood. And I think I probably was sophisticated enough as an adolescent to have told you at the time that I was connecting with the religious element of the freakishness. But the truth is that it was so wild and lurid and sort of like vital in the way that it was deranged. Do you want to describe that, that freakishness? Do you want to describe that freakishness like in her fiction? Yeah, it, it, it is a freakishness that brings to life the conceits of the Bible, I would say. So it is a, it is a world of characters who are maimed who maim themselves out of the inescapable sense of, uh, you know, it's, I, it, it, is a, it is a freakishness of characters who do extraordinary, utterly unreasonable things for reasons that they can't fully articulate and, and who defy, many of whom defy you know, are, are outwardly blasphemous and defiant of a moral universe that they nevertheless are incapable of escaping. So it is the freakishness of a world in which, you know, the, the, this sort of carnivalesque appearance comes from not people enjoying their freedoms, but comes from people trying to escape the inescapable presence of God and their own sense of, of their mortality and sin, something like that. And that, that doesn't and that get often, the style across. That often comes, like those moments of crisis often come through violence, like yes, yes. actual, you know, she would have been a good woman if there'd only been somebody to shoot her every day of her life, right, is one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. Stylistically, she's an epiphanic writer, so there are these, mm -hmm. the, the story, you know, she describes this this style quite brilliantly in the speech, actually, as a in a technical mm -hmm. matter when she talks about distances. But it's violent writing, it's comic right. writing in the original sense of the word comedy. I tried to find a, a podcast to listen to. I wanted to listen to the full speech. It's on YouTube, but I I didn't have internet when I left my apartment, and I wanted to take a walk and listen to it. Yeah. And I accidentally downloaded this. Um, Thomist philosopher from uh, I don't know what college it is Southern Thomist uh, Thomas like uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, Southern Thomas College and and he makes this what I thought was a really brilliant point about O'Connor style which is that you know she's not a satirical writer she did these mm -hmm. cartoons early in her life she was an illustrator and you know, they're sort of um, satirical cartoons, many of them, but her writing, he says, is not satirical, nor is it humorous. It's comic in the original sense, like the Dante's divine comedy sense, which is, to, which is a story with a happy ending, right? And the happy ending for her is that Christ is risen. So 
the world is full of freaks. Terrible things happen. Um, you know, there are killers on the loose. Uh, children are disobeying their parents. And it's funny. And it's very funny. <laughs> By the way, I like that you, as a, as a father, you put those as equal problems. Killers on the loose. Children disobeying their parents. It's, it's, it's the one <laughs> inevitably right. leads to the other. No difference. I, so there's... There's a bit from from Wise Blood that I love, um, you know, because, <laughs> uh, well, it's not normal. It's like one of them gory stories. It's like something that people have quit doing, like boiling in oil or being a saint or walling up cats, she said. There's no reason for it. People have quit doing it. They ain't quit doing it as long as I'm doing it. Yeah, incredible. Also, one of the great opening scenes in all of literature, Wise Blood, um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I you could you could obviously see, excuse me, the influence of Edgar Allan Poe in her writing. Right. She was uh, moved by Faulkner, but makes very clear that she didn't um, she didn't want to to try and imitate Faulkner because that would just be folly, right? There's um, a great there's a great line about that in this in this essay. The presence of Faulkner in our uh, the presence alone of Faulkner in our midst makes a great difference in what the writer can and cannot permit himself to do. Nobody wants his mule and wagon stalled on the same track that Dixie Limited is roaring down. Yeah, yeah. Um. So here is uh, here's something she says in the speech that I think conveys the kind of um the architecture behind the style they're almost like uh, the physics of the style as it were she says mm -hmm. henry james said that conrad in his fiction did things in the way that took the most doing i think the writer of grotesque fiction does them in the way that takes the least because in his work distances are so great he's looking for one image that will connect or combine or embody two points one is a point in the concrete and the other is a point not visible to the naked eye, but believed in by him firmly, just as real to him, really, as the one that everyone sees. It's not necessary to point out that the look of this fiction is going to be wild, that it is almost of necessity going to be violent and comic because of the discrepancies that it seeks to combine. And, you know, there you have it, I think. Hers is a fiction of wild distances, of violent collapses between humor and and violence and uh, the presence of God and, and the, the insistence on the profane, and right. also very funny. She says, the meaning of a story does not begin at a depth where adequate motivation, except at a depth where adequate motivation and adequate psychology and the various determinations have been exhausted. Right. Um, and uh, that called to mind the sort of French existentialist writer Gabriel Marcel, who wrote, to eliminate or to try to eliminate mystery is, in this functionalist world, to bring into play in the face of events which break in on the course of existence such as birth, love, and death, that psychological and pseudoscientific category of the purely natural, which deserves a study to itself. In reality, this is nothing more than the remains of a degraded rationalism from whose standpoint cause explains effect and accounts for it exhaustively. And in O'Connor's fiction, there's not that sort of simple um, cause explaining effect, right? Um, the the 
the distances being traveled are too great. The, the sort of disjunctions are too, um, too severe. Uh, and yet, and yet it doesn't, to me anyway, seem to lack for realism. In fact, it seems to more adequately express um, the strangeness and mystery of human reality than fiction that is more, where you can see every psychological step um, and understand it perfectly. So I know exactly what you mean by that, and I sympathize with it in effect, but, you know, I was thinking about this, and, and I, I don't know that that's how I feel in the sense that I know what realist fiction looks like, and there is a mm -hmm. technical verisimilitude to realist fiction that feels more real or mm -hmm. more uh, authentically mimetic, you know, so... Yes. To say to say that O'Connor's fiction is well, we're going to talk about realer. that with the abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But to say that O'Connor's fiction is realer than that kind of realistic verisimilitude technique, I, you know, it it turns into a semantic debate about like what what the real is, which it's fine. You know, that's actually an interesting philosophical question. But you know, what I would say is that the 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 presence in her fiction is more affecting and more mm -hmm. resonant to me and speaks to a deeper level of my own experience than the more, uh, more perfect technical representation of the yeah. mechanics of the world around me. But that it doesn't mean that I slip into the world she creates in a in as natural a way as I do with more realist fiction. You know what right. I mean? Like, so what, when I enter into, an, uh, when I am in O'Connor's stories, there's a, an alertness, a vividness that I don't yeah. necessarily feel if I'm reading some, you know who I was thinking of in, in connection? Richard Yates, right? The author of Revolutionary yeah. Road. And, and I was thinking like, well, Yeats is a perfect example of this in the sense that he's a very technically skilled, realistic writer of 20th century psychological drama, very much yeah. of his time, very much concerned with explaining in sort of minute and, and fantastically... It eviscerates his characters, right? Eviscerates like you... his characters, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and when he has to explain mystery, all of a sudden... He's wearing a used car salesman's suit and he trots out. He try, you know, the worst part of Revolutionary Road is the crazy guy, right? Yeah. Because yes. it, it's total ghost in the machine writing. And it's not ghost in the machine is the wrong way to put it. But, you know, Yates has this character who is the he's the crazy guy, but he's also the conscience of everything. You know, he <laughs> explains to the, you know, he's crazy, but he really sees it. But it's not like a it's not like Shakespeare's fool where there's something baffling. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. this is like, this is a guy who's just retailing sociology, but with a yeah. little bit of crazy guy eccentricity thrown into it. And I think it, I think it's Yates understanding that there's a limitation. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I love revolutionary road. I mean, like when I read unbelievably that book, well, it's so good. Um, and so, incredibly insightful um you know i mean it's just astounding but i think he understood like that he needed the crazy guy but he couldn't break out of that 
that sort of like critical mold enough to to give you somebody that uh, of the kind of power uh, and mystery that that O'Connor sort of seem, seemingly effortlessly created in every story. So it, I, it is an incredible novel. I don't want to well, sell well, it well, short at all. It's great, but I, I yeah. would just say that the difference between Yates and O'Connor in this sense is that Yates has created a world of almost perfect verisimilitude that exists as a panorama inside a shoebox like the kind right. you built as a kid in grade school. And O'Connor has scrawled on the side of a building somewhere, like cave art, and you're looking <laughs> at it, and all of a sudden you see the universe in it, and it's uncontainable. Right. You know, like it, yeah. Yates is totally contained, and, and mm-hmm. uh, O'Connor is uncontainable. The... um. She, O'Connor writes in the thing, the direction many of us will be <laughs> of many of us will be more toward poetry than toward the traditional novel, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and sorry, who's she of, talking about there? I, f- I forget the of, of writers of her her ilk, right? Right, yeah, um, yeah. And they'll write sort of thinking of uh, seeing people the way the man in the gospel who sees man who is blinded and then is cured, who sees men as if they were trees but walking. Um, the, the 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 I think the critical thing that O'Connor has, and this is to me the line from the, the this particular speech that has always stayed with me. She writes, whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we are still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still in the main theological. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. And uh, a, a man who is whole and is theological is a man who exists inside a universe that he can neither control nor fully understand or explain. And so has to has to relate to it through mystery and manner on some right. level. Um, it's not like a, a higher version of sociological psychological evaluation. Right. It's something orthogonal to that. Yeah, no, right. It's a different language. It's a different Mm -hmm. experiential language. It's not a more, yeah, right. It's not realism plus something else. It's not realism plus theology as subject matter or something. It's just, it's a different experiential and a a different language of living, like a a different way of relating to oneself. You know, I'm trying to be honest when I say that when I, what drew me so much to O'Connor initially, I can only, being honest, say was both parts of this, uh, was the thing that she decries in the Northern reader and the thing that she extols in the Southerner, I somehow was responding to both of them. And I probably still am responding to both of them. Um, but let me let me just read what comes right after that because I think that um, that it sort of completes that thought. She writes, "That is a large statement, and it is dangerous to make it. For almost anything you say about Southern belief can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety." But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The Southerner, who isn't convinced Mm. of it, 
is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature. In any case, it is when the freak can be sensed as a figure for our essential displacement that he attains some depth in literature. Let me say that again. It is when the freak can be sensed as a figure for our essential displacement that he attains some depth in literature. Now, that's that's not uh, that's not merely a comment on technique or on aesthetic qualities. That's a that's a statement about the whole of the enterprise of literature and right. about the moral foundations of the society in which she's living. And you can't really you can't really like uh, accept part of that in, in a merely formal way. You know, I mean, it's, it's, that's a take it or leave it sentiment. Well, and it's also, you know, she's sort of noting like, you Northern readers think that there's such a gulf between you and the freaks, right? <laughs> and I don't think there is at all. Um, you know, and some of, you know, some of O'Connor's, grotesques are grotesques of the sort of sophisticated northerner you know i think of like the the one-legged atheist with the bible salesman um you know which is one of my favorite stories who's you know convinced that you know she's got her education and and they sort of seen through and and she she figures she's going to seduce the bible bible salesman who ends up stealing her leg and, and and tells her you ain't so smart. I've been believing in nothing since I was five years old, or whatever it is. You know, it's just yeah. like this unforgettable. Un- it's one of the just incredible endings of fiction. You know, we, we've been talking about her in relation to a kind of secular sociological vision, but one of the things that's interesting too for me here is, you know, we mentioned there's, you know, she's the Catholic in the Protestant South, right? And I think that the Protestant literary imagination has differences from the Catholic one, right? Um, and it felt like, you know, it's funny, Marilyn Robinson, who's wonderful, I mean, I love Marilyn Robinson's work, um, wonderful writer, and who's, some of her essays, actually, we should probably, we should pick, do one for, for the podcast at some point. But in, she did give an interview at the Times uh, where she was speaking of O'Connor and said, her prose is beautiful, her imagination appalls me. And she claimed that O'Connor fails to describe goodness, right? And said, there's a lot of writing about religion with a cold eye, but virtually none with a loving heart, right? And, you know, you could accuse O'Connor of having something of a cold uh, cold eye. But one of the funny things in this particular speech is it feels like O'Connor has a kind of preemptive response to that criticism from Marilyn Robinson, where she said, which she describes receiving a letter from an old lady who informed me that when the tired reader comes home at night, he wishes to read something that will lift up his heart. And it seems her heart had not been lifted up by anything of mine she had read. I think that if her heart had been in the right place, it would have been lifted up. Uh, which... So this is the this is the moral principle laid bare, which is yeah. that for O'Connor. The recognition of the freak is necessary to be moral. And that the bourgeois decency that the letter writer demands is fundamentally Mm -hmm. immoral because it denies both the reality of the freak, 
and the sanctity of the God who made the world and the freak. Yes, right. And, and you know, this is, you know, when, when people look at, you know, like Marilyn Robinson writes goodness in a, in their characters who feel straightforwardly good, right, in, in her work. And Wendell Berry does the same thing. I think there's a decent amount of Protestant fiction that does this. And O'Connor is writing freaks, right? But I think that O'Connor's approach to goodness is very is very different, right? There's there's another essay in Mystery and Manners where she these nuns asked her to write a like write a mem they wanted her to write a hagiography, right? Because there was this little girl with t tumors all over her face, like cancerous tumors, uh, you know, like had a horribly distorted face and died young from her medical ailments. But the, the nuns who took care of uh, this girl named Marianne thought she was a saint and they wanted, you know, O'Connor, the great Catholic writer, to write about her. And, you know, O'Connor wasn't really into writing hagiography, but she wrote an introduction uh, to the, the nuns' book about uh, about Marianne. And in the, in the introduction, <clears throat> this is what she says. This opened up for me also a new perspective on the grotesque. Most of us have learned to be dispassionate about evil, to look it in the face and find, as often as not, our own grinning reflections which, with which we do not argue. But good is another matter. Few have stared at that long enough to accept the fact that its face, too, is grotesque, that in us the good is something under construction. The modes of evil usually receive worthy expression. The modes of good have to be satisfied with a cliché or a smoothing down that will soften their real look. When we look into the face of the good, we are liable to see a face like Marianne's, full of promise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the, the moral principle here laid bare, and I cannot think of a more relevant statement for our own culture. I, I cannot think of any single literary manifesto of the 20th century that speaks more directly and more incisively about the current condition of the artistic and cultural establishment in the United States of America than O'Connor's notes on the grotesque. She is saying that bourgeois, middle-class gentility is a form of immorality insofar as it denies the existence of the freak and insofar yeah. as it, insofar as it presents to itself uh, a self-portrait, a, a reflection of virtue and of goodness that is fundamentally provisional in all of us, you know, mm -hmm. for a Catholic especially, right? If you if you're born in sin, you know that this idea that you look smugly in the and uh, O'Connor's fiction is just full. Like it, we should say here, right? The villains in O'Connor's stories, and there are villains, okay, right. and the villains are kind of dunces, and the dunces, the villains in O'Connor's stories, are always the good people. Right. They are the nice, well-intentioned, like, over and over and over again. And it's not that the freaks in her stories are heroes, because they're not. There are no heroes in her stories. There's just, you know... It, they're they're good dunces who get dealt with severely and and freaks and ordinary people and and that's essentially the universe of characters um 
but what she yeah, if you imagine about, if you imagine Robinson's Gilead but written by O'Connor you know <clears throat> John Ames there would be a very different perspective <clears throat> on John <throat> Ames right <laughs> but anyway yeah sorry go on no I just I I want to read one more quote because yeah this is the one that I think um really brings it all together in terms of uh, what we're talking about here. She says, and this is from the speech again, she says, it's considered an absolute necessity these days for writers to have compassion. Compassion is a (laughs) word that sounds good in anybody's mouth and which no book jacket can do without. It is a quality which no one can put his finger on in any exact critical sense. So it is always safe for anybody to use. Usually, I think what is meant by it is that the writer excuses all human weakness because human weakness is human. The kind of hazy compassion demanded of the writer now makes it difficult for him to be anti-anything. Certainly, when the grotesque is used in in a legitimate way, the intellectual and moral judgments implicit in it will have the ascendancy over feeling. Now, think about that in the context of the stifling, obliterating sameness in the name of compassion that dominates <laughs> the American artistic establishment today that that insists on. And of course, there are exceptions. Uh, you know, I, I don't it's a silly thing to have to point that out. Everybody knows what I'm talking about when I talk about the obliterating sameness and moral certitude of the cultural and artistic establishment now carried out in the name of none other than compassion and often in the name of the most bastardized therapeutic medicalized version of not even authentic compassion but harm reduction you know it, you know <laughs> this is what it's come to the- there's, you know, it, it, it's funny, like, the, the medicalized aspect of it is, is definitely, um, it, you know, it goes along with this sort of emphasis on trauma. And, like, there was an article in The New Yorker uh, criticizing the trauma plot recently. Oh, Harper's, like, not The New Yorker. The New Yorker, no, Pearl's uh, Siegel in the... In the uh, there might yes, oh, and I think there was another one in Harper's as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and which is a sort of the sort of story where it's like there's a character and they're sort of not doing well, and then so two thirds into the story, there's a flashback to a traumatic scene, which uh, sort of is supposed to explain the current condition of the narrator, right? And like, not all stories that have that shape are bad. I mean, I've written stories that have that basic shape, right, that I'm proud of. Um, I think there's a kind of too easy, um, all-explaining category to it where, um, you know, there's, there's a particular type of suffering, and then the suffering is supposed to be all-encompassing in terms of explanation of character and psychology, and then it's also supposed to sort of stand in for um, a kind of moral center or spiritual center of the work, right? Yeah. Because it's yeah. like, you know, is there any any sort of good that we are advocating? It's like, 
no, this often a kind of weakly articulated humanism or sometimes a story in politics is the basis of a lot of modern stories. But we are sure what we think is bad. And what is bad is, you know, trauma um, and suffering. Um, and for me, that's just, it's just not enough in fiction. Yeah, the question is compassion to what end? You know, it's not like uh, O'Connor is opposed to authentic compassion. But the kind yes. of compassion that she's talking about, which insists on invalidating all moral judgments, is not actually compassionate at all, insofar right. as it smothers the thing that it claims to be defending, right? So like, real compassion would have to look at the freak and say, you're a freak, and your freakishness uh, relates to the moral order of the universe in this way, and and that that's where real compassion would begin for O'Connor. The idea of a a sort of omni compassionate stance that that makes compassion the primary moral principle is for her a way of of just repudiating the fact of. God in the in the universe and of morality itself, because it 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 makes impossible any moral distinctions. And you can think of this not only in, you know, if you're not religious and you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, what if I don't accept the Bible? Think of it in aesthetic terms and think of it in experiential terms. Right. Proust starts. It is, you know series of novels, Remembrance of Things Past, with the with the Madeline, with the cookie that, that triggers the irrepressible surge of memory. And where does it begin? It begins in an unfamiliar room. Right? And there 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 are all there uh, there's the sensory component and then there's the disruption of routine that brings a whole universe in which had been shut out. What I mean by bringing this up is that the whole point of this rush, this flood, this oceanic experience that Proust is creating is that that's what life is designed to keep out. Proust has to write it as a novel because your whole life is designed to shut it out and to make make your existence smooth because that's how we deal with our lives. So Beckett, who has this brilliant little book on uh, Proust, I think just called Proust, uh, Samuel Beckett's book, um, he quotes from uh, the New Testament in it, and he says, uh, um, oh, what is it, that, that habit is the dog chained to its vomit, right? Um, <laughs> and, and that's us, right? Our right. routine, our habits, we are the dog. We are chained to our vomit. Our vomit only be, like the 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 output of our you know the sort of uh, what do you call it? Not the output, but the um, byproduct of yeah. daily existence. And we're chained to it, and to escape from that. And so that, in other words, like compassion produces that sameness of routine, which is comforting and placating, but denies the point of existence and the experience of existence. So there's a, it's funny, a, a buddy of mine sent me this description of a panel that's going to be at AWP, which is like a big writer's conference. And there's going to be a panel with Roxane Gay and Say Jones and a bunch of other writers called Writing the Wound, How to Write Trauma Ethically. And it begins, 
Our wounds, this is a description of the panel, our wounds are the openings to our deepest selves. The craving for connection in these soft and tender places and the instinct to seek out witness to our scar, witnesses to our scars are universal, but how can we ensure that we are writing towards healing rather than re-traumatization? And how do we write ethically about those who have hurt us? Panelists working in fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and graphic storytelling will discuss their personal experiences and best practice principles for writing trauma ethically. So this and, is a perfect moment to break our general prohibition on cursing and say this makes me think of um, the Cronenberg movie where people are fucking each other in their wounds. <laughs> that that's that that's what I think of. Sorry, go ahead, Phil. Okay, well, I don't I don't know there. what. That's the only response I have to that is the the <laughs> fucking into wounds. <laughs> um. You know, there's a way. I mean, there's a way too in, in in Catholic thought where like suffering is a point of connection, right? And um, you know, there's a reason that violence in O'Connor is a means of of um, of sort of breaking out of that that comfort and habit. Um, but it, it's you know that. Description. I think one of the reasons that I react so strongly to it is is just um, uh, it just seems to stay at the level of the kind of medical, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And 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 it, it you know I just had a sort of visceral uh, visceral response to it. You know, I I feel like if you're going to go into trauma, you should go hard. Like, uh, do you know Joe Bosquet, World War One veteran who was paralyzed, uh, died no. in the 1920s. He was a poet. Uh, this is this is one of his lines. My wound was there before me. I was born to incarnate it. <laughs> but um, so I, I found this um, this bit on on O'Connor by Anthony Dorenzo, and he does this really fascinating comparison that I wanted to do at the at the outset, and then maybe we should move on to the debuts because I've got stuff to say about that. But he he starts with one of Bernard of Clairvaux's letters to the Abbot William, medieval famous writer. Uh, and he's angry about uh, gargoyles, right, uh, in religious places. And Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, What are these ridiculous monstrosities doing in the very cloisters where the monks do their reading? These strange things, hideously beautiful and beautifully hideous. What is the meaning of these filthy monkeys, these fierce lions and fearful centaurs, these ugly mutants, spotted tigers, fighting soldiers, and horn-blowing hunters? One sees a head with many bodies and a body with many heads. Here is a beast with a snake for its tail and a fish with the face of a cow. Uh, and then he you know, continues to go on. Um, there is such an amazing variety of shapes all around that one could easily prefer to take one's reading from the walls rather than from a book. And then he compares that to Martha Stevens, who did not like Flannery O'Connor criticizing her. This is Stevens. A good indication of what must be called O'Connor's contempt for ordinary human life is the loathing with which she apparently contemplated the human body. She liked to describe faces. She hardly ever passed up an opportunity, and nearly all her faces are ugly. In the first novel, Wise Blood, this seems true with, to be true without exception. Human faces remind her of rodents, cats, hogs, mandrills, and vegetables. They are frog-like, hawk-like, gap-toothed, mildewed, shale-textured, red-skinned, stupid, demented, and simply evil. Each part of the physiognomy uh, comes in for a share of abuse. Hair is likened to dirty mops and rings of sausage. It is said to stream down the faces like ham gravy. One could continue the catalog, but the point, I think, is clear. Human beings are ugly in every way. The human form itself is distinctly unpleasant to behold human life is sorted now 
And then Dorenzo says, notice the overreaction on Stephen's part. The strong <laughs> suggestion <laughs> that O'Connor's art is somehow misanthropic. It's as if O'Connor had sinned against some secular orthodoxy. She's dared to portray human beings as less than beautiful. Indeed, there are many similarities between Stephen's humanist objections to O'Connor's grotesque faces and Bernard's religious objections to the grotesque carvings on the wall of his cloister. Both critics are motivated by a mixture of outrage and fascination. Both measure the supposed repulsiveness of what they see against an idealized form of beauty or propriety. Both object to the blatant violation of this form, but catalog the details of that violation in its amazing variety with relish. <laughs> and both conclude that any art is, that unashamedly degrades the ideal as such is, is either monstrous or blasphemous. Yeah, look, I, there's a brilliant um, Hilton Halls essay about O'Connor from 2001. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Essay. It's probably the single best piece of criticism I've read on O'Connor and he makes the point uh, I'll try and find the quote here but he makes the point that the thing that's missing in O'Connor is love between people and it has to be said that you know Flannery O'Connor died young a virgin at her parents home in Georgia after moving to New York as a writer following college um, she she developed lupus and you know, you can picture quite easily how O'Connor in an earlier age might have been uh, beatified or, or you know, you, you can picture O'Connor in some, like, intense monastic setting somewhere or, or committing herself in some extreme form to, you know, some extreme form of religious uh, devotion. She was not a uh, an ordinary person, and there is in O'Connor both a genuine compassion for freaks right. and a genuine coldness, or or almost like a inability to recognize grace in the human form between people who are not freakish, uh, <laughs> and. and I, so, you know, that this is like sort of what defines her writing. And this is what all says um, in this essay. He says, what was lacking in O'Connor's life and in her art was the spontaneous experience of intimate love with its attendant joys and tedium and security. In O'Connor's fictional world, carnality, when it comes up at all, is brutal and hilariously symbolic. And, you know, I think that's uh, I just absolutely yeah. spot on, you know, spot on in, in that's that's exactly what, you know, both the love and the tedium. Right? Like she has no sense of uh, the prosaic qualities of love between people. It just doesn't exist yeah. in her work. Well, this is very different from the abuse, but which maybe we should go on. But, you know, one other thing that I'll note that maybe. And I think that there's no doubt that she has a, a cold eye. <laughs> um, but maybe sort of um, shapes it a little. There's a great Alice Walker essay on O'Connor. Um, and Walker writes, um, She believed in all the mysteries of her faith, and yet she was incapable of writing dogmatic or formulaic stories. No religious tracts, nothing haloed softly in celestial light, not even any happy endings. 
It has puzzled some of her readers and annoyed the Catholic Church that in her stories not only does good not triumph, it is usually it is not usually present. Seldom are there choices, and God never intervenes to help anyone win. To O'Connor, in fact, Jesus was God, and he won only by losing. I mean, I just don't think that's true at all. Who said that? Uh, O'Connor, I think it's not true that good is not present, but I think that the important bit is that bit about to Con- uh, O'Connor, in fact, Jesus was God, and he won only by losing. Yeah, okay, but I'm sorry, you said O'Connor. So who who said that about O'Connor? Alice Walker, Alice Walker. Alice Walker. Yeah, no, I don't think, I think that, well, okay, maybe maybe it comes together with the idea that Jesus only won by losing, but I think the whole point of a, or the moral perspective of a novel like Wise Blood or of a, you know, O'Connor's art in general in a sense is, that the it's the inescapability is what attests to the victory finally yeah. you know that mm-hmm. that the like the these devilish attempts to flee god not only never succeed but drive people insane and to their ruin and hilarious comeuppance is a testament finally to the to the existence and and victory of God and so I mean I guess I I guess I see what she means but I don't know it's not that's not how I read it also it's like it misses the the, the humor is like yeah is missing there you know well I'll give you one bit bit from the comedy which actually is really fantastic After O'Connor's great stories of sin, damnation, prophecy, and revelation, the stories one reads casually in the average magazine seem to be about love and roast beef. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's good. Um, (laughs) Okay. Should we move on to the debut? I mean, I could keep talking about O'Connor forever. Let's go. So you you introduced the debut because you know more about him. Um, So the, the reason that I wanted to pick this, I think it's probably was fairly obvious to you once you read the story. He's also a deeply Catholic writer, um, profoundly influenced by his Catholicism in, in, in his approach to thing, deeply interested in ritual, um, uh, in mystery, in sort of embodied experience, but he is extremely realistic. Right. Um, and also, but also deals with violence. Um, and, so he's somebody writing with many of O'Connor's preoccupations, but in a radically different style. Um, and just he's, you know, one of the great short story writers of the latter half of the 20th century. So uh, I love his work. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's the same preoccupations in a radically different style that happens to 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 be consonant with but actually quite different from the style of realism that o'connor is criticizing in notes on the grotesque um this story killings is a revenge story i have to say on a formal level it's brilliantly paced i mean it just uh you know it's like it's a it's a kind of psychological suspense that uh manages to be digressive and yet gripping throughout at the same time 
Um, and it's a revenge story about a father and a murdered son and a family broken by the murder of the son and the father's sort of uh, shattered life and uh, the father reliving over and over the the loss of the son and and uh, I've said it's a revenge story so you know you have some sense of what direction it heads in but um, but yeah the pacing is really really masterful and the and the um, the, the kind of development of the characters like the the bad guy as it were the way he emerges where early in the story he's a kind of shadow a legend you know right. a whisper he's like this thing this evil presence whose name isn't even mentioned right his his name doesn't come up till the second page then you just have his name and then you get to the sort of backstory on him and the the structural development of the character is uh really really good and really powerful yeah uh, so it begins on the August morning when Matt Fowler buried his youngest son, Frank, who had lived for 21 years, eight months, and four days. Matt's older son, Steve, turned to him as the family left the grave and walked between their friends and said, I should kill him. And from that point on, you sort of quickly learn that, like, uh, so the son had been in this relationship with a divorced woman who had a sort of abusive husband and the abusive husband had like been threatening had like beat up the kid one time beat up the son one time because you know he was sleeping with he's sleeping with my wife and then at one point just goes in and kills him and then the story starts after the murder uh and the killer strout is out on on bail right awaiting trial and so the family sees him and the wife, Ruth, the father's, you know, the mother uh, of, the, of the murdered son, Ruth, will see him. And they sort of are, the father is sort of slowly working himself up to, to kill him, right? Like it starts uh, where he mentions, you know, that he's got a 38 that he started carrying around and he's, and he's carrying it around in the hopes that he like runs into Strout and Strout does something that gives him a chance. You know, like there's this kind of like, sort of amping himself up and, and, and convincing himself that this guy should be killed. Uh, and then the father works out a plan to murder, to murder the guy. And as they're going through, he's sort of trying to puzzle apart the, his feelings about the death of the son, the, what drew the son to this woman. There's a kind of, beautiful passage that's that's the most powerful part to me the the emotional core of the story is not the desire for revenge it's the father the father's sort of intimate contemplation of the experience of love between his son and this woman and he there's this one incredible moment where he says like he wasn't sure whether he wanted to know how it felt from his son's side or from the woman's side. Like 
to to be his son loving the woman and to feel that or to be the woman loving his son and to, you know and it's it's very powerful yeah there's there's a sort of moment where cuz the son gets beaten up by the ex-husband and after that like the the parents are are kind of wondering like why are you with this woman right who has two kids um, Who's got two kids? Who's rumored to have uh, been a lady about town, right? Um, and they're kind of hanging out in their backyard, and he's looking at her. Uh, after a few drinks, uh, it was in her wide brown eyes that she looked older than Frank. After a few drinks, Matt thought what he saw in her eyes was something erotic, testament to the rumors about her. But he knew it wasn't that, or all that. She had, very young, been through a sort of pain that his children and he and Ruth had been spared. In the moments of his recognizing that pain, he wanted to tenderly touch her hair, wanted with some gesture to give her solace and hope, and he would glance at Frank and hope they would love each other, hope Frank would soothe that pain in her heart, take it from her eyes, and her divorce, her age, and her children did not matter at all. On the first two evenings, she did not bring her boys, and then Ruth asked her to bring them next time. In bed that night, Ruth, Ruth said, she hasn't brought them because she's embarrassed. She shouldn't feel embarrassed. And then there's a double line break. Richard Strout shot Frank in front of the boys. And it, and it's just, I mean, Boom. part of the, the pacing is. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, and actually, well, what? that's that, 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 so there's that passage that I read. And then there's this, like, stripped down, unemotional, just the facts description of the killing, which is, like, intensely bracing. And then there's a long passage where the father is talking about how, like, he'd always been a nervous father, right? And I, I don't know, like as a dad, like when I read that, the whole, it was, it, it's incredible. I had this, the, had the exact same response and I made a note of it and I thought to myself, oh, like this is what is actually, I've been reading H.P. Lovecraftian recently yeah. and you know, it's freaky and um, like, you know, the void at the center of the universe is, mm -hmm. um, can be yeah. troubling to contemplate, but I don't lose any sleep over it. Um, yeah. And then I read that I read the, the nervousness of the father you know, when the kids go to the beach and you're just like something could happen. And I shudder, you know, and I, um, should, should, should we read that? I mean, it's, it's a little bit. Yeah, long, please. Yeah, go okay. for it. So, and, and again, this is like the pacing because it's like that tender moment that I read, then that like just brutally unemotional description. Let me just say and, one thing before you read yeah. it, because the, it, I wanted to, to say something about that moment you just read when yeah. he's in the backyard considering yeah. like, what is it about this brown haired woman? And I was just thinking as you're reading that, oh, this is a perfect illustration of what O'Connor does that's completely different than what Taboos does with mm -hmm. the same moment because you could see a set piece in O'Connor that begins in roughly the same way with the mm -hmm. contemplation of the mystery of the brown haired woman. Like you could imagine an O'Connor story where somebody pauses over what was it about, you know, something sort of related, but Debus, it's, it's again, it's what O'Connor was talking about in terms of the distances and the, and the collapse of distances. Debus looks at the surface the brown-haired woman, the son's love for her, the trouble in her eyes, and then it plunges into a an inner depth. It plunges into his feelings, his life. It, it plunges yeah. into the the consideration of the pain that she's gone through. A kind of 
experiential, psychological depth. O'Connor would take that same set piece and from the superficial or the, the kind of the moment of uh, social interaction, she would explode out into a unreachable sense of mystery, right? Yeah. Instead of going inward, it would go outward to the shadows creeping in from the forest at the edge of the at the edge of the property and so that's to me that the matter of distance is is very clearly illustrated the difference in the kind of distances they're trying to register right yeah yeah and and right and you know the construction in in the debuse is i mean the construction is important in both but there's a sort of different sort of emotional texture um that he's getting and sort of how he moves through these scenes. But yeah, here's, here's the bit. He had always been a fearful father. When his children were young, at the start of each summer, he thought of them drowning in a pool or the sea, and he was relieved when they came home in the evenings and they were there. Usually that was relief was his only acknowledgement of his fear, which he never spoke of and which he controlled within his heart. And he had, when they were very young, and all of them in turn, Kathleen too, were drawn to the high oak in the backyard and had to climb it. Smiling, he watched them imagining the fall, and he was poised to catch the small body before it hit the earth. Or his legs were poised, his hands were in his pockets, or his arms were folded, and for the child looking down, he appeared relaxed and confident while his heart beat with the two words he wanted to call out but did not, don't fall. In winter, he was less afraid. He made sure the ice would hold him before they skated, and he brought or sent them to places where they could sled without ending in the street. So he and his children had survived their childhood, and he only worried about them when he knew they were driving a long distance. And then he lost Frank in a way no father expected to lose his son. And he felt that all the fears he had borne while they were growing up, and all the grief he'd been afraid of, had backed up like a huge wave and struck him on the beach and swept him out to sea. Each day, he felt the same. And when he was able to forget how he felt, when he was able to force himself not to feel that way, the eyes of his clerks and customers defeated him. He wished those eyes were oblivious, even cold. He felt he was withering in their tenderness, and beneath his listless wandering, every day in his heart, in his soul, he shot Richard Stroud in the face. Yeah, I, I mean that's almost difficult to listen to, you know. The uh, yeah, because I know what it feels like to collect those fears and to feel like yeah. um, one day you'll just be done with them, like. Um, and then to have them come back when your son, you know, to, to make it through childhood, as it were, and, and then to have it all come back in that way. No father should have a son taken from him in that way. I mean, it's a, just a devastating thing to, uh, to contemplate. And, and, and so he doesn't, uh, he doesn't know how to re-anchor himself aside. I mean, revenge is like in an almost... Um, you know, in an almost methodological sense, it's like the logical way to re-anchor yourself. If you've been taken out to sea, so what do I do now? I'll kill the guy, you know, because right. how else can I, how else can I live? How, how can I not be drowning all the time? I'll just, you know, in that way, it's like, it's not, it's not wild and irrational. It's a, almost a perfectly rational as a response to that. Yeah, and so then in the story, they, he, you know, he has this plan. Him and another guy, they, they sort of wait for, for Strout in a parking lot. Um, 
he gets in the car with him. They drive home. The, the idea is, you know, they're going to make it look like he just, you know, ran away and disappeared and sort of skipped out on bail. And so, you know, that entails going to Stroud's house and they tell him, like, you know, we can't stand the trial. It's going to destroy my wife. So, uh, you know, we've got a plane for you, right? They promise him that he's going to escape. Um, and the way that that scene happens, because he's he's there with the killer, you know, holding a gun on him for an extended period of time. And you sort of, you know, they go through the house and he sees pictures uh, on the wall. Um, is just really remarkably done and you sort of there's there's one thing that he does so you know i I, I talked about that moment where he describes the killing in this kind of stripped down way we get the killing of his son multiple times in the story as he goes back to it and the most emotional sort of retelling of the killing of the son is when he's you know there uh holding the gun on uh on Strauss killer and the reason of course uh that he does that uh there's this bit you know he, he thought of frank sitting on the couch and perhaps talking to the children as they watch tele- television imagine him feeling young and strong um uh and then the, you know it goes through this whole sort of richly emotionally invested scene um and then the front door uh, opening and this son of a bitch coming in and frank seeing that he he meant the gun in his hand this son of a bitch in his gun the last person thing frank saw on earth it's like this emotional, warm retelling so that he can psych himself up to kill this guy. Um, and again, yeah, the, the sort of pacing is perfect. And they... Um, yeah, because they, it's it's plotted, right? It's revenge. Right. He has to psych himself up. It's not an impulsive... Mm-hmm. You know, it's worse. It's a, it's a more serious sin, not to mention uh, first-degree homicide, not second-degree homicide, because... Right. He has intended it. He's plotted it out, and and he almost wavers at the last moment, or or at least he wants to be. He wishes momentarily when he first sees Strau come out of the bar where he works that Strau would just uh, have have come out with friends or something, so he had an excuse to back out. Because of course he's not a natural killer. He's not uh, somebody. He's not a sociopath. He's not somebody for whom right. this is a trivial thing. And, and so he's going through all of this and he's reliving the experience that his son might've had in his final moments so that he can steal himself to do this thing. Do you know, Phil, I don't know how much of a sense of like, um, sin you get from, I mean, certainly there, you, you feel the, weight of the act in the final yeah. scenes but uh you don't feel I, I, as far as the way i read it the kind of uh, moral universe coming in on him so i think it's not the moral i think the moral universe because remember he's a religious writer right is not maybe the right way um so th- there's an essay of Debussy's called sacraments right and he, and he writes, I cannot feel joy with my brain alone. I need sacraments I can receive through my senses. I need God manifested as Christ who ate and drank and shat and suffered and laughed. Right? A sacrament is physical and within it is God's love. And in the Catholic Church, there are seven. But no, I say for the Catholic, 
church is Catholic and the world is Catholic, and there are seven times 70 sacraments to infinity. Um, and, he, and he has this thing about like making lunches for his girls and, you know, and he thinks like making these sandwiches is a sacrament, right? Um, and so there's a sort of thing in his, in his work where there's like these repetitions in the world, the knee deep bullshit of the world. One character says like, you have to you wake up, you have to just crap that you have to do, right? The daily work and these pa- patterns. Like a dog, like a dog chained to its vomit. Exactly, right? And then there are sort of physical things that you do, um, rituals that you consciously accept, right? And, you know, and for me, I think, um, you know, I have talked about this before, like in the modern age, I think, you know, we sort of want to distance ourselves from ritual, in mating, uh, the Norman Rush's novel, the main characters like you know repetition. You know, religions are just about repetition. You know, repetition is mindless. But I think what actually happens is either you you create rituals that you consciously use to shape and order your life, or uh, oftentimes rituals are created for you. Right in the modern era, a lot of times those are created by you know <laughs> business interests and and and, uh, and advertising and all sorts of other things. And so if you're thinking about like okay there's something horrific that's happened and he's trying to do something physically, right? That is going to get him out of it. And the, the here's the moment of the killing, right? So um, they take him out to this secluded place and it's here that Strout realizes like, okay, no, I'm not getting on an airplane. They're, they're going to kill me, right? Um, Strout turned to walk, the suitcase in his right hand, and Matt and Willis followed. As Strout cleared the front of his car, he dropped the suitcase, and ducking took one step that was the beginning of a sprint to his right. The gun kicked in Matt's hand, and the explosion of the shot surrounded him, isolated him in a nimbus of sound that cut him off from all his time, all his history, isolated him standing absolutely still on the dirt road with the gun in his hand, looking down at Richard Strout squirming on his belly, kicking one leg behind him, pushing himself forward toward the woods. Then Matt went to him and shot him once in the back of the head, right? And then... That's a brilliant, brilliant piece of technical writing. Yeah. And then we get it again. Like, we get it multiple times. So then they're driving south. um, And he relived the suitcase dropping, the quick dip and turn of Strout's back and the kick of the gun, the sound of the shot. When he walked to Strout, he still existed within the first shot, still trembled and breathed with it. The second shot and the burial seemed to be happening to someone else, someone he was watching. Right. Um, and the the sort of, and then there's a sort of third time that we get the killing. So he goes back to his wife. And one of the things that is really nicely done is you don't know if Ruth, the wife, knows what they're going to do. Right. I thought, kinda, I thought that she did not know. When I yeah, was reading it, I was under the impression that this was a secret. Um, yes, that he didn't want. And he hasn't. To know about he it. hasn't spoken to her about it, right? But she knows, right? And so they're sort of doing it for her, but they haven't discussed it with her, and they're keeping it secret from her. So you don't actually know her relationship to this. Um, and then he goes back to his wife, um, and. Uh, With Ruth, he saw again the dropping suitcase, the darting move to the right, and he told of the first shot, feeling her hand on him, but his heart isolated still. 
speeding on the road still in that explosion like thunder. He told her the rest, but the words had no images for him. He did not see himself doing what the words said he had done. He only saw himself on that road. Um, and then uh, uh, she falls asleep, um, and he felt her sleeping now, and he saw Frank and Strout, their faces alive. He saw red and yellow leaves falling to the earth, then snow falling and freezing and falling and holding Ruth, his cheek touching her breast. He shuddered with a sob that he kept silent in his heart. And so... It's a physical action that, um, where the primary sort of repetitive image is one of kind of isolation and alienation, right? Um, and so it's not moral. I think it's hard to judge him morally, but I think one gets the sense that this is a, he's trying to respond to something in a physical way that doesn't in some way doesn't succeed, right? Um, that there's some yeah. sort of sacramental response to this situation that a killing is not adequate to. Yeah, well, maybe that's the answer. But I sort of feel like you're, you've answered my question, but I, I don't know. My initial instinct was you hadn't answered it because what I'm saying is if he's a religious writer, as you're saying, you imagine that there's got to be a theological dimension to this beyond his psychological but beyond the inadequacy of the sacrament mm -hmm. as a psychological bomb right so right. i understand that he's going through these actions he's sort of created this this uh, ritualistic act that involves not only the killing but the retelling of the killing first in his own mind and then again to ruth when they're in bed together as a way that's meant to purge the grief uh, from the loss of his son. And even, and even I think is intended to make his son whole again in some way, but, and it doesn't work for him, right? It's, it could yeah. never finally be adequate for him. I just mean that I don't get the sense of a, judgment coming from outside of him now you could say that maybe for Debussy, it's the inadequacy of the solution that points to the judgment in the sense that well why shouldn't he feel good about it right but you know and, and maybe so like that punishment is indicative of the kind of moral universe outside of his own psychological coping with the act but I'm not saying it needs to be that. I just was curious yeah. because I know you've mentioned him as a, a, you know, a pious Catholic and a religious writer, and I didn't get that. I didn't get that sense from it. But maybe I'm yeah, being so too there, literal. No, 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 no. I think there's, there's. So I think it becomes clear when you read more of his work, right? Like it's not here because this is not a religious character, right? This is a secular character dealing with a problem and dealing it with, with it with the resources that he has available, and they're not sufficient, right? And so within the world of this story, religion doesn't really oh. enter. No, 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 but, no, no, but, but so there's, there's sort of... That's a cop-out, yeah. though. That's a cop-out. He's a secular character. You don't make your world... Right? Is he a secular character yeah. in a secular universe, or is he a secular character 
in a universe created by God. I mean, if it's the right. latter, then you would you would imagine that you would touch that in some way in in reading the story. I don't think. I don't think that. I don't think that. Debuse would say that it's not right. So there's, you know, the the sort of religious narrators. Um, uh, rely on, um, you know, rely on religious tools to to respond to the challenges, and the secular narrators don't, right? Um, and but it's the world doesn't feel distinctly different in the more obviously. So you we read um, a father's story, right? Uh, uh, and it's not that the world in a father's story is somehow a, feels different than this. Um, it's the same. Um, it's the same world, right? Uh, it's that the it's a, they're different sort of religious tools that the characters bring to bear. Right. The character in that story is explicitly a religious character who's talking to his priest and uh, right, yeah. And, and so I think that for him, and I, I think you're 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 narrowing in on an important difference, right, um, between O'Connor and 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 Debuse. But like for for Debuse, it's it's this is the world and then there's sort of kind of what we have to respond to it right and so in the fiction of of under debuse like if you think of religion it's not a series of kind of propositions but we see it almost as like the truth of the religious expression comes in 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 the way that like like you feel religion to be true in his stories in the way that you know that a hammer works when you drive in a nail correctly. Right. Hmm. Um, because it offers the way of living in the world that is, um, that is honest and has a certain degree of depth to it. Right. Um, you know, I, I think this sort of in, in my own fiction, right? Like, so in redeployment, there's, you know, I think <laughs> that for me, the stories that are most motivated by religious consciousness are, um, you know, one of, one of them is, is narrated by a priest. So it's like, oh, okay, this is obviously a religious story. But there are other stories in that collection that are not explicitly religious in any way, but are about characters navigating a world with a very different set of tools and those tools not being adequate to the demands, right? And from from my perspective, writing it, that's very much coming from a sort of, you know, so this is a story of bodies by, where it's like a mortuary affairs guy whose relationship to sort of preparing the bodies of the dead to be sent home has sort of reduced his notion of what the human is to the physical, right? And... Um, that story is motivated by my religious concerns, even though they don't enter in, right? You, I, I don't think you would read that and say, this is a religious world, but I think that that might be how, how this functions in terms of, you know, how he's a religious writer. Um, you would need that, that additional context, right? 
nobody's going to read killings and think, oh, this what a what a description of of um, of religious faith because it's not there. But I think that within the context of Debuse's overall sort of understanding of reality and how re- religion fits into it, it doesn't it doesn't jar. No, I understand what you're saying, but it, you recognize in the story a lack that with yeah. a greater context you could you could see as uh, the lack of a, a transcendent or, or theological right. understanding. Yeah, yeah. yeah this this is a, this is this is a story describing a lack, right? I mean, there's only so much that he's going to do with one story, right? Uh, and that's what this story. I mean, it's like in some ways it's a story describing a lack. In other ways, it feels like, like I was saying before, like the heart of the story feels to me like this, like to use another Catholic notion, a kind of communion. Like the, it's this mm-hmm. communion between right. his father, this father and his dead son that takes place vis-a-vis the son's relationship with this woman. And he's right. so I get oh, so maybe that's so like what he wants more than anything, right? What the father actually wants is to enter into the love that his son experienced with this woman, and he wants right. that so powerfully that he wants it from both sides. Like he wants her yeah. love for him, and he wants his love for her because because he wants to feel that, and in feeling that, it would bring his it's it's his son's life. It's bringing it back. He can't have that. He can't consummate that communion yeah. that he wants. So he kills the guy. Right. Right. But it, but he doesn't. It's not like yeah. Okay. He wants to kill the guy in the sense that that it's a it's a it's a an impulse. But it's not a fulfilling impulse. Like the 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 love that he wants. He wants not merely the satiation of the impulse, but the outcome. The killing, he wants the satiation of the impulse, but the outcome remains uh, regrettable and unfulfilling. Yeah, and 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 isolating, right? It's right, the opposite right. of the communion, right? That, that's right. Yeah, right. And then he tries to have the final communion with Ruth in bed, and that too, you f- he can't sleep with her. He wishes that he could sleep with her. But he's he's not up to it, uh, and like the very last passage of the story, after retelling the killing, he says that he wishes he could sleep with her, but he can't. Yeah, so it's a it's a in a very direct sense, the inability to to consummate that between them. Right. Um, you know, there's a there's another. You know, if you compare that to there's a bit in um, from his uh, story adultery. Um, one of the characters says, although he knew it was rarely true, he maintained and was committed to the belief that making love could parallel and even merge with the impetus and completion of the Eucharist. Else why make love at all, he said, except for meat in meat, making ourselves meat, drawing our circle or mortality not around each other, but around our own vain and separate hearts. But if she were free to love him, each act between them would become a sacrament. Each act a sign of their growing union in the face of God and death, freed of their now imposed limitations on commitment and risk and hope. Because he believed in love, he said, with all his heart he believed in it, saw it as a microcosm of the Eucharist, which in turn was a microcosm of the earth-rooted love he must feel for God in order to live with certainty as a man. 
And like his love for God, his love for her had little to do with emotion, which at times pulsated and quivered in his breast so fiercely that he had to make love with her in order to bear it. But it had more to do with the acts themselves, and love finally was a series of gestures with escalating and enduring commitments. So I, I don't know that you want me to say this as like a final thought, but I do hear in that passage both something very affecting and like the meat want to, you know, meat, more meat. That line yeah. is great. But I hear in that what I respond to in Flannery and don't respond to as much in, in Deboose. Mm-hmm. That this this sort of uh, raw psycho-spiritual style to me is too, you know, I don't know, too completist in its yep. like, uh, you know what I mean? And I, I'm... I, and so I end up retreating from it in a way, whereas yep. if there was more of a, more of a, an unknown element, I think I would be drawn into it more. Yeah, I think I love Debus. I love O'Connor more, right? But he's unquestionably a master, uh, like short story writer. I mean, Killings is an incredible story. It's uh, just you know structurally te- technique wise alone really phenomenal and I, and I just as a final thought on the technique I'm, I'm glad you say so because I wanted to give you another debut so you could redeem yourself from your horrible opinions I, on listen, the father's story I, I, I'm saying that I thought this was a technically fantastic <laughs> story and, and not just technically fantastic I think it's a it's an affecting story but it's the style I don't respond to uh it's not ultimately for me. I like his storytelling much yeah. more than I like his sort of emotional writing. You know what I mean? I, I like his technique and his storytelling and his character and plotting much more than I like his more um, intense, subjective stuff and and... The, I was just going to say the part where he introduces Strau and like where you learn about Strau for the first time that he was this high school athlete and then went to college as a football player and then became a kind of narrative. Well, it's like it's only like two paragraphs. But for uh, listeners who go and read the story, I think you'll see it's a it's a fantastic economy of storytelling. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this Philly, great, my man. boy. Listen, uh, people, human beings, persons, stay tuned if you want to hear some of the Flannery O'Connor speech in her inimitable voice, which is like uh, some kind of mixture of uh, cartoon character, maybe Betty Boop, and uh, Southern, uh, Southern matrician woman from a movie from the 1920s or something. I, I don't know quite how to describe her voice, but um, it's wonderful. And there is a recording of the, uh, not the original speech, but of part of the uh, notes on a grotesque in Southern fiction that you will start to hear now. I never, I never Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks. I say it's because we are still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, 
the general conception of man is still theological. Now, that, that is a big statement, and it's dangerous to make it. Almost anything you affirm on the subject of Southern belief can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety. I'm sure some poll taker could come along and get up a table to prove that the South doesn't believe anything at all. But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it's quite safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-hearted. The Southerner who isn't convinced of it is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>